0: This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. It's hard to believe that in
1: a country as wealthy as Australia, food insecurity could have reached a crisis point, but it has. And now thousands of families each week face the desperate choice between heating and eating, as Brianna Casey, the CEO of Foodbank, explains frankly. This is especially true in the wake of the pandemic. I'm Kate Mills, the host of Women's Agendas new podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by Brianna, who shares insights on this issue and how we can find a way forward. There's collective responsibility and opportunity for business, government and individuals to get this right. I hope you get a lot from this conversation with Brianna. Hello, Brianna. Um, Real pleasure to be with you here today. Um, You've got a really amazing role as the CEO of Food Bank. But what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, when you grew up, who inspired you as you were growing up?
0: I was incredibly fortunate to grow up in Byron Bay. What inspired and motivated me was Byron Bay was always a place where um, acceptance was encouraged and tolerance was encouraged, and it was about recognizing that people had any number of backgrounds and beliefs and stories that led them to be in Byron Bay. And I think Growing up in that environment, one surrounded by natural beauty, but also a really diverse and eclectic mix of people in in the world that I grew up in, led me to be really interested in social policy, but also in environmental policy. And ultimately, I went on to study environmental science uh, at Griffith University in Brisbane. And I didn't know what I wanted to be, and so I did a triple major, and one of them was in social policy. And I think what it showed to me was, whilst sustainability was a key driver and a key passion of mine. Um, And we were at a period of time where we were looking at phasing out land clearing in Queensland and we're looking at the sustainable development goals or the millennial goals at that time. Um, What really motivated and interested me was the role of people in that debate and the fact that people can have such vulnerable um, experiences and backgrounds and really providing a voice for those who don't have a voice has been a consistent narrative throughout all of my career and I was incredibly fortunate as I was finishing up my environmental science degree to see a position advertised with Queensland Farmers Federation. And whilst I grew up in Byron Bay, my grandparents' farm was in Bangalore in the hills behind Byron. And I had grown up on that rich red soil and incredible land that suddenly turned into being useful for farming housing estates. So for me it was very much around what does the future of farming look like if we are going to see this environment where farmers are being um, encouraged to sell up their land for other purposes and and move into these housing estates and developments, what does that mean for the future of agriculture? So for me going into an environmental policy role at Queensland Farmers Federation was very much around pursuing those big passions of mine around social policy, but also sustainability. Um, and I have to say, I was not embraced and encouraged by my peers at that point in time. They uh, they seriously questioned how someone who quote, purported to be an environmentalist, could go and work for farmers because a lot of people had a real stigma attached to what farmers were like back in the late nineteen nineties. And for me, if I wanted to positively influence change in the way that we sustainably farm our landscape, why not be part of that debate? So there and there started my career at Queensland Farmers Federation.
1: And and was it in that role, your first your first proper job if you like, where you started to feel like you could really have an impact on outcomes?
0: Oh, very much so, and I was unbelievably fortunate in that I had a CEO and a chair at the time who really put a lot of faith and trust in me and my ability to be able to advocate on behalf of farmers. And it was during during a really contentious time, um, as I mentioned before, phasing out land clearing in Queensland. We were looking at chemical use in agriculture. We are looking at runoff into the Great Barrier Reef. And through that role... I was given the opportunity to be an advocate for farmers and meet with politicians and have debates with senators about the future of agriculture. And I found it really inspiring and motivating. And As much by accident as by design, and and I've had a lot of time to reflect on how fortunate I was, and we had um, a a situation arise and, look, agri-politics can be unbelievably political and peak bodies and peak farming bodies can go through big periods of tumultuous change. And uh, towards the end of the late 90s, coming into the early 2000s in the middle of the drought, we went through that period ourselves as Queensland Farmers Federation and our chair and our CEO moved on. And the incoming chair... Took a punt on me and said, you know, will you keep the seat warm while we're recruiting for a CEO? I said, I'm 23 years old and I haven't got the first idea how to be a CEO. But he really saw something in me that I didn't even see in myself. And so I kept that seat warm for another six years uh, before I came down to New South Wales Farmers to work for them around drought policy and social policy as well. And honestly, that was the turning point in my career to have someone who believed in me at such a young age, who saw something in me that I didn't see in myself, and recognised that storytelling and advocacy was something that I was deeply passionate about. And if I was to have a role in influencing government policy, I had to tell farmers' stories and I had to tell them well and I had to demonstrate that making changes to government policy would lead to better outcomes for sustainability, for our farmers, for the economy, and really deliver on that triple bottom line that everyone talks about.
1: What were the big lessons that you learnt about leadership over those six years?
0: I think one of them was surrounding yourself with people who inspire and motivate you. And I think it is the ultimate launch pad to be involved in the Farmers' Federation from such an early age because you have people who not only have incredible expertise and knowledge but have the capacity to really advocate for what matters most to them. So I was very fortunate to have a number of farm leaders who I found the most extraordinary advocates and and have followed their career. Years, um, as my career has progressed, and I really look to emulate a lot of those leadership qualities that I saw. And I think particularly when it comes to farming, um, and particularly when it comes to agri-politics, it's that leadership model where you're not out in front and shouting from the, the rooftops. It is that kind of corralling from the back and being there alongside people and, and inspiring and motivating and providing that leadership as a peer and a trusted colleague, not as someone, um, and you know, apologies for the language, we use it a lot in farming, the shiny bums, the shiny bums who spend spent a lot of time sitting at desks and thinking they know the world, guess what? You've got to get out there and get your feet dirty and understand the issues that you're dealing with. And I think for me, leadership has always been about um, seeking first to understand and then be understood. And I think that is something that has really um, been with me right throughout my career is you can't be a subject matter expert at everything. You can do all the reading you like and and study all the things you want to study, but um, you need to surround yourself with people who understand the issues and, and can put it in a language that you understand so that you can then share that story and tell that story alongside them. And, um, if there's one thing that I have lived my career by, it's, it's around integrity and respect. And I'm never going to be an advocate for an industry that I don't believe in, for um, a cause that I don't believe in. For me, unless I genuinely believe in what I'm doing and, and I support it wholeheartedly, I'm not going to come across as authentic. I'm not going to be authentic. I'm going to be a talking head for someone who doesn't need it. I will always be in an industry or a sector or in a role That is about sharing a voice on an issue that I feel passionate about. And I've just been incredibly fortunate that from farming to early childhood education through to food bank, that is a constant in my career and it's something I'm really proud of.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting how you draw the line between those three, because anyone looking from the outside might think, oh, it's quite different, actually, you know, moving from farming <laughs> to early childhood education. But when you draw that line through the three, it, of course, makes sense. So, of course, you were there in Queensland for six years, and then you moved to New South Wales. What was the impetus? And are the issues the same when you cross when you cross the border?
0: <laughs> they were quite different. Um, but the one constant was farmers were facing an enormous amount of challenges. And New South Wales farmers had gone through, uh, again, a period of change, both structurally within the organisation, but also it was during that millennium drought where we saw so many farming communities affected not only by what was going on in terms of on-farm income and lack thereof, but really starting to see very serious and significant impacts around mental health and wellbeing. And when I came down to New South Wales Farmers, um, the role that I went into was called Rural Affairs, and it was very much around those social policy issues that really needed talking about. And during the late 90s and early 2000s, Mental health was not something that we talked about openly. It was not something that was accepted. It was something that had a stigma attached to it. People just weren't talking about it. And one of the greatest things that New South Wales farmers did at the time was hold a drought summit where it wasn't just a discussion about the impacts of drought on income and farmers. And we did discuss that. That was really important. But what we did after lunch was encourage people to stay. And we had a session called Bugger the Drought. And honestly, that's that's what we want to say, Bug of the drought, let's just talk about what this is doing to our people. And it was one of those incredible turning points where we as a community said it's actually okay to talk about the fact that you're not okay and we need you to reach out and ask for support. And it was at a time where Beyond Blue had just started and we finally started having great conversations about the fact that our farmers weren't just at risk in terms of the work they were doing on the land, they were at risk in terms of their futures. And we set up the country's first ever rural mental health network and we really corralled all of the voices that we needed around the fact that farmers needed that support and we needed to ensure that when a farm family is at its most vulnerable, that there were those resources to wrap their arms around that family and support them. And I'm really proud that that pattern has continued right through to today where we don't just talk about the economic impacts of drought or the economic impacts of bushfires and natural disaster. We talk about the impact on the family unit. We talk about the impact on people and we talk about the impact on people's mental health and wellbeing. And if we don't discuss these things, we can't manage and treat them. So I'm just thrilled that it is part of our everyday vernacular now we talk about it openly and that's terrific um
1: you you're there for a few more years and then you move to the australian child care alliance new south wales you are of course a mum yourself i think you've got two yes. children if i'm right yes um yes, indeed. What was, the, what was that move about and what were the challenges that you were looking for? You've drawn a really nice line through your different jobs and your career, but at the same time from the outside, it might look quite different.
0: Look, I'm going to be honest that this was an accidental success story in that um, at New South Wales Farmers and my boys were very young at the time and I had the most extraordinary president that I was working under in Fiona Simpson, who's now the National Farmers Federation president, our first female president of the Farmers Federation and a trailblazer and a changemaker. And she and I were involved in the mining and coal seam gas debate, and and it was a really busy time. But I'm going to be really honest here and vulnerable. I suffered burnout, and I had two young children, and I felt like I was failing them as a mother. I felt like I was failing New South Wales farmers because I wasn't 100% there. My mind was in 100 different places, and I needed a break. And so my plan was best laid plans, my plan was to take a year off, be a stay-at-home mum, do all the things that I never had time to do from drop-offs to pick-ups to reading groups, you name it. And uh, a week after I, I finished up to, to embark on this year, um, I had a phone call from a recruiter telling me about this amazing job 20 minutes from my home representing mums and, and an industry um, and a sector that was about promoting and encouraging high-quality education and care and accessibility and affordability for parents. And, and I will say mums because primarily when we talk about this debate, it's about mums returning to work. Uh, It is changing, and that's a very positive thing. But for me, I went and found out more about Australian Child Care Alliance New South Wales, Um, and it is the peak body for privately owned long daycare services across New South Wales. And for me, I went into that role both as an experienced CEO and advocate, but also as a mum who really relied upon high quality education and care as someone who was working with two young children. So I could really see it both from a consumer's perspective, but also also a provider's perspective and uh, it was an extraordinary few years because we were going through a period where we'd had a change in government so Tony Abbott had just been elected and Susan Lee had become early childhood minister and was determined to lead reforms within the early childhood sector looking at both affordability of early childhood education and care and also accessibility because unfortunately whether it be the cost of early childhood education and care or other circumstance some of the most vulnerable children in Australia don't have reliable access to high-quality education and care. Um, So, again, for me it was about providing a voice for those vulnerable children and ensuring that providers had the tools that they needed to continue providing high quality education and care, uh, but also families had access. And I was involved in some really significant reforms of the early childhood sector and sat on a ministerial advisory council leading those reforms. And again, in terms of leadership, it was enormously challenging for me because I was seen as someone from outside of the sector. I was sitting around a ministerial advisory council with primarily women who had been involved in early childhood education and care for decades and they had a wealth of experience and here I was as a farm lobby expert coming in to try and tell them what was best for children and providers. So uh, it was quite isolating, but uh, I think hopefully when we look back on it and and certainly the deep friendships that I made with a number of colleagues in the sector, I really hope they respected the policy gravitas that I brought to that debate and the fact that we were able to provide uh, some really meaningful advice that led to better outcomes for families for providers uh, and ultimately for the future of Australian children
1: i'm interested though in on one thing you said there because it was quite a personal personal admission essentially you were you had some you had some burnout you know you had two young children what are your thoughts on the intersection between being a mother and being a leader is there anything that could be done to make it easier
0: i think being honest with other mums about the fact that just because we've fought for decades to have it all doesn't mean you should do it all and i think I very naively thought that when so many trailblazing women before me had laid and cleared this path ahead of us saying, you can be a CEO, you can be a full-time working parent, you can be this, you can be that, that therefore you must be. And I think we have to be honest with one another and hark back to that old saying about it taking a village to raise a child. Well, the reality right here, right now is I'm here in Sydney. My parents don't live near me. They're actually in Queensland and at the moment I can't even cross the border to be with them. I didn't have any family in Sydney. I moved to Sydney without any base at all. Um, I didn't have that village around me. And a lot of the mums that I got to know through mother's group and through school and through um, early childhood were also working mums who were equally busy. So I think we need to be honest with one another and recognise that just because we can be at all doesn't mean we should and that it is absolutely fine to ask for help and support and, and reach out and, and get those assistance measures when you need them um, and to be really honest with your team about the fact that it is hard and it is challenging. And I think what has delighted me about COVID, and, and I know that sounds funny because so much of it is awful, But what has delighted me about COVID is we now have this radical transparency and honesty about how challenging it is to be working parents. And I love that I sit in on Zoom meetings with children on laps. I love that I see dogs barking in the background. I love that someone goes, I've got to check out because I've got to run my child to soccer training or whatever the case may be. Because guess what? We're all on this one, <laughs> we're all in it together. We're all going through the same challenges. And one of the things that I love um, at our, our office at Food Bank, when we are back in the office, is that we celebrate the noisy exit. This is not about slipping away quietly to your child's assembly or sporting performance or reading group or whatever is is taking you out of the office. Don't tell me that it's another appointment or or make up a meeting. Celebrate the fact that you are walking out of that office to go and be with your family and go and be an awesome parent because that is to be commended and they are the values I want us to live by in our team. And I think what COVID has done through allowing Zoom screens into our lounge rooms, into our homes, into our home offices is a recognition that not only is that okay, but it's actually awesome.
1: Your current role now, um, you've had such an amazing career, it's taken us a while to get to it, but you are the CEO of Food Bank which is the country's largest hunger relief organisation. And it's a really great organisation and does fantastic work. Again, tell me how you came to this role and what the challenges that have been as a leader.
0: Food Bank I am unashamedly proud of and I've never been prouder to be a food banker and I adore this organisation. So apologies in advance if this sounds like I'm spruiking, but um, Food Bank is your ultimate insurance policy when things go wrong. Essentially, Food Bank is here to provide food relief to vulnerable Australians when they're in crisis. And that crisis might be a natural disaster. It might be drought, it might be bushfires, cyclones, floods it might be something going on at home and it's everyday stuff. It's about families who are living on or near the poverty line who, for whatever reason, find themselves in really tough times where food becomes a discretionary item. And it's really simple stuff that can cause this to happen. It might be the tyres going on your car unexpectedly. It might be the fridge going bust after a years and years and years. It might be the school shoes and the rates bill and water bill all landing at once. It might be someone unexpectedly having a medical incident. It might be a woman escaping domestic violence with her children. Whatever the crisis, whatever the situation that is leading someone to be making a conscious decision between paying rent and eating or heating and eating or being able to escape a dangerous situation and knowing that you can still fill your child's lunchbox with food, That's what Food Bank is here for. We provide food relief to 2,400 charities nationally and their household names, the Salvos, Vinnie's, Anglicare, any organisation that you can think of that provides food and groceries to people when they're vulnerable generally gets their food from Food Bank. And we're incredibly fortunate in that not only are we helping to fight hunger but we're also helping reduce food waste because we work with our farmers and, again, for me it's about that connection to country all over again, working with our farmers to rescue fruit and vegetables that don't look quite right but are still nutritious and delicious. We'll rescue those from our farmers, from uh, packing sheds, from the markets. We work with food and grocery manufacturers, again, around products that might have uh, damaged packaging or labelling issues or are going through a new rebranding exercise. And we work with our retailers as well, so your Woolworths, Coles, Aldi, Metcash, to make sure that if there is food that doesn't otherwise make it into the trolleys and the baskets of people who are shopping, it can come into food food bank and we can then find a home for that food and we were already unbelievably busy before the bushfires that we saw over summer before we saw COVID hit we were already incredibly busy we were already assisting 815,000 people per month what we have seen throughout January when the bushfires devastated so much of New South Wales Victoria and South Australia and then we didn't even take a breath and we went straight into COVID the great thing about that is Food Bank has been there throughout all of those crises back-to-back to support people when they are at their most vulnerable. Um, the challenge we have right now is one of exhaustion. Our teams have not had a break since New Year's Eve, um, but also one of sustainability. How do we make sure we can continue to provide this level of support to so many Australians, knowing that not only are they vulnerable right now, But when we're going into an economic recession, when unemployment rates are so high, what are we going to do over the next couple of years to make sure that nobody slips between the cracks? And that's what's keeping me up at night.
1: And what are your thoughts about that? Because, you know, we're standing here at this point, it's the beginning of the decade, um, very, uh, very unusual, very different start to a decade than than what we might have expected. Um, And we know that there are some, that there's going to be really tough economic times coming out of this. What are you thinking about? How are you going to meet that challenge?
0: part of it is around having enough food and groceries to provide not only the current client base but the client base into the future so it's around having those wonderful relationships with our farmers our manufacturers our retailers and and the Australian food and grocery industry as a whole and ensuring that we can tap into those products and supply chains during these periods where they are under huge stress themselves i mean trying to source food and groceries during that panic buying period was incredibly tough but thanks to the the maturity and the longevity of those relationships that we do have so many iconic Australian brands stepped up to support us and they deserve all the recognition in the world and then some for the generosity and kindness that they showed to Food Bank during that period. So that's a a key challenge in itself and ensuring that we have sufficient funds to be able to buy that food. Um, Unfortunately, because of drought and and some of the challenges that we have seen, we're not able to rescue as much food as we traditionally would be in the past. Um, So we've embarked on a fairly uh, active fundraising strategy to make sure that we have sufficient funds to be able to buy the food and groceries to support Australians in need. Um, But the other challenge that we really do have is one around financial literacy and making sure that people who are vulnerable right now have access to financial counsellors to be able to ensure that they have the skills, the knowledge, the resources, the toolkit to help them back on their feet when the time is right and when they're ready uh, to rebuild and and, um, recover from whatever crisis has led them to this situation. So uh, one of the things that we are talking to, to a number of people about, uh, particularly when we look at women and girls, is ensuring that there are opportunities for financial literacy to become part of that everyday educational experience that we have with our traditional subjects at school, because it's all well and good to, to soar from an academic, academic perspective. But if you don't have the life skills or, or the toolkit to be able to assist you when you leave home and, and enter this environment that we're going into in the 2020s, where where housing affordability is going to be a real challenge, the employment uh, opportunities for young Australians is going to be enormously challenging, and we're facing a global recession. It is really a triple whammy, and we need to ensure that we do have sufficient resources available to assist those who are vulnerable, not just now, but in the years that it's going to take them to recover.
1: You're talking about this sort of critical, this decade that's coming along and all the challenges that that we're going to face. What's the role for leadership and what kind of leadership are we going to need during this decade?
0: I think what we are going to see this decade is a return to understanding people and a return to leadership styles and attributes that are about nurturing people whether they be people in your team, whether they be colleagues, whether they be uh, people in the community and your client base, this has to be about recognising that every Australian has been touched by COVID-19. They may have lost loved ones. They may have experienced mental health and wellbeing issues. They may have experienced economic hardship. Every Australian has been touched by this. And I think we're going to need a renewed sense of sensitivity, of kindness, um, and one of honesty. And I think the leaders who are impressing me the most at the moment are those who are leading with personal experience and leading with honesty and showing their teams that it's okay to be vulnerable, that it's okay to be a hot mess sometimes, <laughs> that we're all really uh, struggling with uh, just the pressures of getting through this period and, and the pressures and the expectation, the weight of expectation um, that we're going to come out the other side bright bright and shiny and new. I think it's, it's really important that we be honest with ourselves as much as with our colleagues and our teams about the fact that it is a long haul and a long slog and that we need to take breaks, and I mean very genuine breaks, where you can take the time to recharge your batteries whichever way that works for you to make sure that you can continue through this and that if you can't that that's okay too that there's always going to be options
1: You have been listening to another episode of The Leadership Lessons, the female perspective you need for the decade ahead. Our producer is Liza Gebelagin, and we would love to know what resonated from this interview and what you think you might put into practice. Please let us know on social media. Now, make sure you're subscribing on your favorite podcast player and you leave us a rating. And for more from us, visit womensagenda.com.au. See you next time at Leadership Lessons.
0: Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.